You may be seated. Um, back in January, we did 21 days of prayer, and during that time, we did a sermon series called It Is Written. And the goal was for, to start the year by focusing on the two wings of the Christian life, by focusing on prayer and the Word, because those are the two wings. You've got to have both if you're going to soar. And I encouraged you back then to uh, make reading through the Bible a goal for this year, to just read through the whole Bible, every word, this year. And personally, I've been reading through the chronological Bible. And I know many of you have told me you've got different reading plans that you're doing, and I just want to encourage you to continue with your reading. We're coming up to the middle of the year here, and there's just something in us as humans that we get halfway, we think that's good enough, and we give up. But I want to encourage you. Let's keep going. Let's persevere. Let's re-up and uh, finish the year strong on this. Maybe you didn't start in January. And I just want you to know, you don't have to start in January. You can start reading the Bible anytime. And the summer's a great time to start because your schedules are goofy, different things are happening, new habits are being formed, new opportunities are there. So I want to encourage you, if you're not reading through the Bible, jump in there and, uh, and start doing it. Because the goal of this is to build both wings of the Christian life into your life, both prayer and the Word. And so today I, I want to start a three-part series that we're going to do called Toolkit, How to Study the Bible. Because it's a great thing to read the Bible, but really the next level, the next step, is for you to study the Bible. So how, how do you do that? Well, the secret of Bible study is asking the right questions. The more you bombard a text with the right questions, the more you're going to glean from it. Because the Bible the Bible's a supernatural book. Bible is a living book. And you can study a passage of Scripture over and over and over again and still get new truth out of it. It's, it's amazing. There are passages of the Bible that I've studied for, for years. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, uh, Psalm 23, Romans 8, the whole book of Proverbs. I mean, every time you come to those, man, there's new stuff there. So you can never run out of truth in a particular verse because the Bible is a living supernatural book. So if you learn the principles of Bible study, you're going to discover things in Scripture that you've never seen before every time you come to a text. So there are four tools that you need to use in every Bible study. Observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. And so I'm just going to quickly explain these four words for you, and then we're going to come back around and actually use them in a Bible passage today to show you how to do this. So the first step, first tool in Bible study is observation. Uh, in observation, you ask the question, what does it say? And you look at a Bible passage, and then you write down what you observe. Not trying to interpret it, not trying to determine what it means at this point. You just write down what does it say. The difference between Bible reading and Bible study is, in Bible study, you take notes. Uh, if you're not making notes, if you're not writing stuff down, you're just reading. That's a good thing, but you're not studying, which is an even better thing. So, uh, you know, when you, in this step, you just write down. It says this, it says this, it says this, it says this. That, that's the step of observation. What does it say? The second tool in Bible study is interpretation. What does it mean? And people say, well, doesn't the Bible mean what it says? And no. <laughs> the Bible means what it means. 
doesn't necessarily mean what it says. Because that's true in every piece of communication. Every piece of communication, we use metaphors, we use analogies, we use figures of speech, we use phrases that don't mean what they say. For instance, if I wrote you a letter and I said, you're pulling my leg, and a thousand years from now, somebody finds that letter, and, reason, and they think it literally means what it says, they're going to think that you came over to my house and you grabbed my foot and you were jerking my leg around. Okay? <laughs> that is not what that means. It means you're kidding me. You're joking me. You're funning me. You're teasing me. So the point is, the Bible means what it means, not just what it says. And how you know what it means is by looking at the context in which it, it says stuff. Uh, another illustration here. If I give you the word pin, P-I-N, well, what does that word mean to you? In a group this size, immediate. some of you are thinking of a rolling pin, some a bowling pin, some a sewing pin, some of you are thinking of a pin on a golf green. There are over 60 different meanings to the word pin. And what the word means has to be determined by the sentence and the context in which it's used. And so the same is true, true with the Bible. Uh, you know, you, you can't just uh, take it out of context and uh, think that you know what it means. So uh, the third tool in Bible study is correlation. Correlation. You want to ask, what other verses explain it? You know, is there anything else in the Bible that would help me understand what I'm reading here? Because the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. You use the Bible to explain the Bible. You interpret an unclear passage in light of a clear one. And so if you're reading something in the Bible and it doesn't make sense, then you look for something else in the Bible that does make sense that explains it. You, you always use the clear to explain the unclear, not the other way around. And a lot of people will take an unclear, obscure verse of the Bible and run with it, and that's how you wind up with all these cults and all this screwy stuff on the Internet because they're using the, uh, the obtuse to, to be their foundation. When, no, you need to look at what's clear. Uh, and that's why it's important to read the whole Bible, because you need to know what's in the whole Bible. That's why it's important over your lifetime to study the whole Bible, because you need to know what the whole Bible means. And it's a lifelong pursuit, because the Bible is just so rich. Fourth tool in Bible study is application. What will I do about it? And that's the whole point. The whole point of the Bible is to get to this step. The whole point of the Bible is to impact how you live. And so I've got to ask myself, what will I do about it? So today, I'm going to just use these four tools uh, with a scripture passage and just walk you through this process. So we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. And a little historical context for the passage. Paul is writing this letter from Rome. He's in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel. And while he's in prison, he writes letters to the churches that he had planted uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And one of the letters that he writes is to the church in the city of Philippi. And because he's writing it to the people in Philippi, we call it Philippians. And the Philippians have taken up a love offering and sent it to Paul while he's in prison to meet his needs. And so he's writing back now, and he's thanking them for this offering. 
So that's the context. Here's, here's what Paul says. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So Paul's in Rome with Timothy, a young pastor that Paul was raised up, and Paul wants to send Timothy back to Philippi. That I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have nobody else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everybody else just looks after his own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proven himself. He's proved himself as a son with his father. He served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I can see how things go with me. I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. So Paul says, I want to come see you, but I'm in prison. So I'm going to send Timothy to you until hopefully I have my trial and get released, and then I'll, I'll come going on. He says, but I think it is also necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger because you sent him to take care of my needs. The Philippians had sent Epaphroditus to Rome with the offering, and now Paul wants to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi. For he longs for all of you. He's homesick, and he's distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed he was ill. In fact, he almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you couldn't give me. Now, at first blush, this passage doesn't seem to be real deep. I mean, it's just a personal thank you note for an offering, and it mentions a couple of friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus. In no real deep doctrinal truth, no big life lesson or encouragement for me. I mean, well, why is it even in the Bible? <laughs> well, we know there's a reason for it to be in the Bible because there's a reason for every verse to be in the Bible. So we just have to study it to find out. So let's pull out our four tools and let's put them to work on this passage. First is observation. What does it say? I see, I observe three things in this passage. In verse 19, Paul says, I hope to send you Timothy. In verse 25, he says, I think it's necessary to send Epaphroditus back to you. So my first observation is Paul intends to send two men to Philippi. Nothing fancy about that observation, nothing deeply spiritual. Paul's sending two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, to Philippi. Verse 20, Paul says of Timothy, I have no one else like him. And it'd be real easy to, to pass over that, but that's a tremendous endorsement. I mean, Paul is, next to Jesus Christ, Paul's the greatest Christian who ever lived. And if he says, I got a guy in my life that I got, nobody else is like, that's a huge endorsement. And in verse 29, he says this about Epaphroditus. He says, welcome him and honor men like him. Honor men like him. So Paul said, these two guys, they're different. They're unusual. They're unique. They are worthy of honor. And he says, you, you, you need to honor them. You need to imitate them. Second observation, Paul endorsed these men as role models. Role models who are worthy of honor. Well, why? 
Why are they worthy of honor? Why do they deserve to be praised? What, what did these guys do that makes them so special? And so my third observation is that Paul describes what these two men are like. In verse 20, he says, Timothy takes a genuine interest in you. Verse 22, Timothy has proved himself. Verse 25, Epaphroditus, he's my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. Verse 26, Epaphroditus longs for all of you and he is distressed. Verse 27, Epaphroditus almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life. So now all I've done is read through this passage and write down what I saw. Paul intends to send two men to Philippi. He endorses them as role models. And then he describes what these two men are like. That's, that's observation. What does it say? Now the next tool is interpretation. So what does it mean? Verse 21, Paul says of Timothy, I have no one else like him. Well, why? Why is nobody else like him? Because Timothy takes a genuine interest in your welfare, and everybody else only looks out for their own interests. And Paul says, that's rare. That's unique. This guy's different. I got no one else who takes a genuine interest in the Philippian church. Everybody else is just concerned about themselves. Now, one of the ways that you can interpret Scripture is by comparing translations. There are dozens and dozens of English translations that we have access to. And sometimes people will realize that and they say, man, that is just so confusing. Which one is right? But I want to encourage you, don't let that confuse you. Let it help you. Use it as a tool. Because every translation has a little different nuance to it. And looking at different translations can give you a clearer picture of the text. I like how Pastor Don, our uh, children's pastor, says it. He says, using multiple translations is like looking at a verse in living color instead of just black and white. And so today's English version says, Timothy genuinely cares for you while others only care about themselves. Philip's translation says, they're all wrapped up in their own affairs. So we have the first characteristic of a godly person. A godly person is caring. A godly person, a godly man, a godly woman is caring, compassionate, unselfish. They're not un, uh, ambivalent. They're not uncaring. They're, they're genuinely interested in what's going on. Everybody else is only interested in their own agenda. But the godly person is caring, compassionate, and unselfish. And Paul says that's worthy of honor. Second thing we learn about Timothy is in verse 22. It says, Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. A God's word translation says, you know what kind of person Timothy proved to be. And the word proved means tested, verified, checked out. T Timothy is reliable. He is faithful. He is dependable. The greatest ability is dependability, and that's Timothy. He's got it. So the third thing we, we learn is a godly person is consistent. Consistent. A godly people are consistent in their values, consistent in their behavior. They don't act one way at home, one way at work, one way at church, another way with friends. No, they are consistent in their behavior. Godly people aren't moody. When you don't know from one encounter to the next whether you're going to get hugs or slugs, a, a godly person is consistent. They are proven reliable. 
Verse 25, Paul says, I send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. He gives three metaphors here. Uh, Brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. And those three metaphors have something in common. And that is that a godly person is cooperative. Because the Christian life is a family, it's a fellowship, and it's a fight. We're a family. We are related. The Bible says we're to treat older women like mothers. We're to treat the older men in the church like fathers. Treat the younger men in the church like brothers. Treat the younger women in the church like sisters. Over 133 times the Bible uses the term brothers and sisters to describe believers. Why? Because we're a family. We're related. And not only are we a family, we're a fellowship. We're fellow workers. We're two fellows in the same ship. Okay? That's fellowship. We share the same environment, the same destination, the same struggle. We're working together. You know, if, if it's, you got two guys in, 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 in a ship, you don't want one guy rowing and the other guy rocking it. You don't want one guy rowing and the other guy drilling holes in the bottom of the boat. No, 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 no. You know, we want to work together. We have the same task, the same mission, the same great commission. And so we're, we're fellow workers together. And then we're fellow soldiers. We, we fight the same battle against the same enemy. We all fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're on the same side, and so we need to be fighting for one another, not against one another. We support and encourage one another. And that's why we uh, have small groups, because we're in this fight together. You know, some people say, you know, I don't need anybody else. I can go it alone. I don't need to be a member of a church. I don't need to be in a small group. You know, when they say that, they're proving that they don't understand how much they need what they need. Because we need each other. Because the Christian life is a family, a fellowship, and a fight. And godly people cooperate. They're not difficult to get along with. Being grumpy, being stubborn is not a virtue to be proud of. It is a behavior to stop because godly people are cooperative. Listen, folks, grumpiness is not a spiritual gift, okay? It's something you need to stop. Verse 26, Paul says of Epaphroditus, he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. And and look at the emotional intensity in this verse. He longs for you. He is distressed. The church in Philippi was started by Paul, and now Paul's in prison in Rome. And so the Philippians take up a love offering, and they want to get it to Paul. But somehow they got to get it 800 miles from uh, Philippi to Rome. And there's no planes, trains, and automobiles. I mean, somebody's going to have to walk from Philippi to Rome. And one of the guys in the church, Epaphroditus, says, I'll do it. I'll do it. He's going to leave his family, leave his business behind while he, while he does it. It's a great personal expense for him. And then Epaphroditus gets sick and nearly dies while he's making the trip. And word gets back to the Philippians that Epaphroditus nearly died. And what's his reaction to that? His reaction is he's distressed by their distress. He's concerned about their concern for him. He's worried that they're worried about him. He's grieved because they've experienced grief. That's the fourth characteristic of a godly person. A godly person is considerate. A godly person is considerate. 
Are you ever distressed about somebody else's distressed? Are you ever concerned about someone else's concern? Are, are you ever worried about somebody else's worries? Or you just go, you know, get over it. I got my own stuff going on. A godly person is considerate of the feelings of others. I just say what I think. I just speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may. Well, there's a word for that. Rude. Okay? It's rude. Anybody can just say what they think. Babies say what they think. You know, little kids just say whatever they think. It's a spiritually mature person who knows how to control their tongue. So don't be proud of rudeness because a godly person is considerate of the concerns and worries and the feelings of other people. Verse 27, Paul says, Indeed, Epaphroditus was ill and he almost died. He almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you couldn't give me. And notice what, what he, he's risking his life for. He almost died for the work of Christ. You know, he's taken risks for the benefit of the church and for Christ. You know, lots of people take risks for themselves. Uh, lots of people take crazy risks for themselves. I and mean, we've got people dying on Mount Everest uh, this climbing season. We've got, uh, you know, people go out and surf these enormous waves and jump out of airplanes and raft down rapids. And uh, you know, I'm not talking about uh, doing risky stuff to get a rush from an extreme sport. Or, or doing something risky in order to get some glory on YouTube, or doing something risky in order to make some money. You know, I'm talking about risking for the benefit of the church. How often do you take risks for the benefit of the church? I mean, if you were asked to take an offering 800 miles to another church and you had to walk, would you do it? And God uses courageous people who put people ahead of profit, who put courage before comfort and convenience, who put uh, service before security, people who take a risk for the cause of Christ. Is your commitment to Christ deep enough to cause you to risk anything in your life for Christ? Or is it just a convenient faith? I mean, the excuses Epaphroditus could have used. I mean, I got a business to run. I got a family to take care of. I got kids in school. You're asking me to leave work for two or three months and walk to Rome to take an offering to a guy who might be executed before I even get there. Paul says, I don't have anybody else like Timothy. Paul says, Epaphroditus is a man worthy of honor. These men are caring, consistent, cooperative, considerate, courageous. And he says, we need to honor them. We need to imitate them. Third tool, correlation. What other verses explain it? And so, are, is there anything else in the Bible about Timothy and Epaphroditus? And the answer is yes. In fact, with Timothy, there are two other books, First and Second Timothy, letters that Paul wrote to Timothy that will tell us a lot about the kind of man Timothy was. Epaphroditus is mentioned one other time a little later in the book of Philippians where they describe why this offering thing happened. And so I can read that and I can learn more about those, those two men. But another thing is, is just to ask, does the Bible have anything to say about these qualities? And in order to do that, you, you would use what's called a concordance. And a concordance is an index of every word in the Bible and the verse where it's found. And you can go to the Christian bookstore and, and buy a concordance. It's a great big book, but you know, usually they're not very expensive. They typically have them on sale. 
and you can get one for whatever version of Bible that, that you use. Uh, but the great thing about our day is, is that on the web, for free, you have online concordances that will do that for every version. And I love Bible Hub and Bible Gateway. Uh, you know, you can go on there and, and uh, it's tremendous. Your U version, the app you have, many of you have on your phone, it's got a concordance feature. And if nothing else, in most Bibles in the back, they've got a, a small concordance. And so, if, for instance, if you want to study the word considerate, You'd look it up in the concordance, and you'd find all the other verses in the Bible that use that word. And then you would go to those passages and ask these same four questions, and it begins to fill in the picture of what it looks like to be a considerate person. So that's the step, the tool of correlation. But finally, you come to application. What will I do? And this is the most important step of all, because you, you only believe the parts of the Bible that you actually do. And it's not enough to study the Bible. If you just study the Bible, that'll just give you a big brain and a hard heart. Okay? James 1.22 says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. And so let me just give you a couple of examples of application that can come out of this passage that we study. And the first one is, Paul says, honor those like these. Honor men and women like these. And so I just ask you, do you know anybody like this? Is there anyone in your life who is caring, consistent, cooperative, considerate, and courageous? And if you know somebody like that, honor them. Honor them. You know, just... Uh, you know, write them a thank you note, give them a pat on the back, an encouraging word, get them a gift certificate, buy, them a, buy their lunch, just some way, recognize and honor those people. The second application is to decide, okay, which of these characteristics do I need to work on in my life? Which one of these do I, I need to improve? What acts of caring do I need to initiate on behalf of other people? How, how can I be more consistent and reliable? How can I uh, be more considerate of other people? How, how can I be more cooperative and part of the team? How can I be more courageous for the cause of Christ? And then you make your action steps personal. And, and you write it down. You write them down. What, what will you do? Not what does everybody else need to do. What will you do? And it needs to be practical. It needs to move from theory to practice. Something I can actually do. And then possible. Don't, don't set your sights so high that you can't possibly reach them. You know, like this week I'm no, not going to be like Kelly anymore. I'm going to be just like Jesus. Well, that's, that's impossible. Okay? But you want to... Uh, Tremendous life change doesn't happen in a week, but baby steps over time will take you somewhere. So make it possible. And then provable. The best application, you have some numbers with it. You know, how many times am I going to do this? How much time am I going to spend on it? By what date am I going to do it? And you put down some specific goals so that you can measure your progress and it encourages you as you meet it and then it keeps you on track. So I want to encourage you this week to just, as you're reading, just pick a Bible passage, sit down for a few minutes, ask these four questions, write down your answers, write out your action plan, and then pray and ask God to help you do it. If you'll do that, you'll be living on the two wings of the Christian life, prayer and the Word. And this summer, we can soar. Let's pray together.
God, I, th I thank you for your word. I thank you for how rich, how rich it is that every time we come to it, it's got what we need. And so, God, I pray that you would stir our hearts to not only read your word, but to study it and to glean the depths of the meaning that you have there for us. God, I pray that we'd learn from this lesson, that you'd help each one of us to uh, step up the game in our own lives, to seek to be more caring and consistent, cooperative, considerate, courageous, that you would show us the areas where we need to move and act, the things we need to do, and that we can trust you for the strength to do it. God, what hope you've given us in your word, help us to latch on to it. In Jesus' name, amen.